people can either help themselves or if we can, mm. you know, with, with, as, with as little um, intervention as possible, help them become compliant, then we absolutely can and should and will mm-hmm. as, a, as a first sort of principle. Re- regulators shouldn't, to the extent that it's possible, over-service. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about matching the, the right type of intervention to the right type of behaviour that you see. Today, we're speaking with Robert Hordle, the Commissioner of Wage Inspectorate Victoria. Rob is an accomplished government executive with more than 20 years regulatory experience in industrial relations, both at state and federal levels. Wage theft is facing increased scrutiny after high-profile cases in Victoria over the last few years. The problem cuts across many industries, from retail and convenience stores to restaurants and fast food establishments. Wage Inspectorate Victoria, otherwise known as the Inspectorate, was established in 2021 and has since helped more than 15,000 Victorians. The Inspectorate's role is to ensure employers pay their workers fairly under powers set out in the Wage Theft Act 2020. Their work protects people from being paid too little or not receiving the correct entitlements such as overtime, penalty rates or superannuation. In this episode, We'll hear what it's like to build a brand new statutory agency in the depths of Victorian lockdowns, hearing practical tips about engaging people to build your culture from the ground up. Rob reflects on balancing the inspectorate's role of educating businesses and workers about the law and taking appropriate compliance action in a way that is accessible and fair to all. Our conversation ends with reflecting on the role of ego in leadership and ensuring you are able to maintain the different energy levels it takes to lead. Rob conveys some practical tips during this episode that are well worth listening for any public sector leader who may be having to lead through uncertainty. And I'm sure there's quite a few out there that are facing that during these times. There are also some great reflections on why it's important to keep people at the centre of change. Thanks so much for joining our podcast today, Rob Hoddle. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Chloe. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, I guess where I wanted to start is if you could tell us a bit about your journey to become the Commissioner of Wage Inspector at Victoria. You know, it's a, it's a big role and similar to other commissioner roles or CEO roles, I guess it involved a lot of reflecting and decision-making on your part. So, yeah, what led you to the decision to take on the role and what did you have to balance stepping into it? It's funny because um, before I stepped into this role, um, it's not really a a role or a type of position that I'd ever really conceived myself Mm -hmm. to be in. I'd worked in in executive roles in in government. I'd been in regulation a long time and I'd always, always had... Uh, an interest in in leadership roles, but I've sort of considered leadership and, and regulation as my as my practice. But I had never really conceived myself as being a, a head of agency or a mm. or a um, you know a, a, a chief executive. The way it happened was really interesting with Wage Inspector Victoria because I I came into Wage Inspector Victoria back in um, late 2018 um, when it was really just in its sort of fledgling stages mm. as that as being known as that organisation. So it had previously been part of a, um, you know, larger, larger department mm. and it was now just establishing its own um, sort of personality as a, as a as sort of rebranded regulator. 
but it was it was not at that stage conceived that it would be a standalone um, regulator or indeed have um, standalone laws enabling it. Mm. Um, and so, by virtue of that, it was never really conceived that it would that there would be a um, you know a chief executive or a, a head of agency. Um, mm. But as 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 things happen, um, you know things changed, and and for me, um, when the opportunity came up to um, apply for the role. I sort of, I had I had more reasons to give it a go than I had to not give it a go. Mm. I was, you know, I was, I was well across the subject matter. I'd mm-hmm. been guiding the organisation in its sort of predecessor stages up to that, up to that point. But I did think really carefully about it, Chloe, and, and I thought to myself that should I step into this mm. role or should I say be lucky enough to be appointed into the role, I would probably have to change some of the way that I was working. Mm. Uh, I would probably have to change the nature of the way I was handling some some um, relationships, and that I would have a lot to learn um, mm. as I as I stepped into the the role as well. And and sort of so it so it turned mm. out to be. I'd, I'd been in workplace relations for for over twenty years at that stage. Um, the subject matter was already interesting to me, but the challenge of stepping up into into this role mm. as a, a commissioner and a CEO, it was a massive learning curve for me, for sure. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about where those big learning opportunities sat for you? And I guess I'm also interested in how you saw that changing the relationships you had as well. Yeah, well, the, the, the big one really is... As a statutory appointee, obviously having that that independence mm. in the first instance, independence from mm. from government. Now that that independence is baked into our act, and I mm. and I take that really seriously. And certainly, I would not have considered applying for the for the role had it not been a statutorily independent role from from government. Um, and that necessarily changes your relationship with, um, you know, mm. your department and it changes your relationship with um, mm-hmm. the, the minister and our, our minister is uh, the treasurer, treasurer yeah. palace. And so that, that relationship had to, had to change and, and evolve as well. So those were, those were some of the kind of immediate mm. challenges that, that came up. Um, the other thing that was going on at the time though, Chloe, was we were, we were trying to build a brand new statutory agency. Mm. Um, we had a stack of, of new people on the team who had either, um, you know, some of them had not been in in regulation before, mm. some of them had not been in ind- industrial relations before, some of them had not even been public servants before. Yeah, um, wow. So so we were trying to build this, this new team and, and blend, you know, what we had of, mm. of existing staff with this new group of staff and, and continue to grow the organisation. So... The challenges at that point were um, seemed really massive, and it and it seemed really really daunting. Um, mm. But I was but I was so so pleased and so honoured to have been appointed. Um, mm. And I love the job; it's challenging every single day. Yeah, but geez, I love it. Wage Inspector at Victoria's had a really interesting start as a regulator. You noted kind of coming into that. Um, role of a regulator um, and being quite independent from the department. But I'm aware also that that occurred during a time of COVID-19. You were navigating lockdowns, you were establishing this really new workforce. And as you've reflected on, they've come from a variety of different backgrounds as well, um, often with varying degrees of experience in terms of industrial relations, um, workplace relations, even, you know, 
being a public servant. So how did you go about, um, I guess, building that momentum of a new organisation, establishing that identity and building a sense of connection in amongst all of those challenges? I mean, when you put it, when you put it like that, um, it, you know, I, I reflect on it as a bit of a mountain to climb. It was, yeah. it was really, it was really difficult. So we, we, I mean, we did a couple of things. It was sort of the mechanics of, mm. of setting up the organisation. We had a brilliant project team led by a brilliant principal project manager mm. who really, we, we really strangled as much as we could the, the governance around mm-hmm. the, the establishment project um we knew that there were things that would take longer mm. due to due to covid um mm-hmm. we knew we had to build in time frames for a lot more uncertainty we had to build in um you know we we, we had to build in contingencies for things mm. that you know we knew were just going to be more difficult because we couldn't be in the same room because we couldn't speak mm. um you know perhaps directly to to vendors in the way that we might like mm. to because we couldn't do things like um, you know, inspect our physical office space mm-hmm. as regularly as we might have liked to. So, so from a project perspective, mm-hmm. we really tried to, to strangle the governance of it. And I, and, I, and I must really, and I, I reflect on this often, just the brilliant project team who yeah. who, who steered that through and, and the, the help of, of, you know, particularly Industrial Relations Victoria who, who guided mm-hmm. that project as well was, was incredible. Um, from a kind of people and culture perspective, we, we made a couple of decisions early on that weren't that weren't perfect, but I think served us relatively well in terms mm. of trying to bring the organisation together and, and sort of galvanise everyone under a single under a single vision. Um, one of those things that we decided to do was was we decided in effect to mm. over communicate. We decided that we couldn't overcook it when it mm-hmm. came to communicating with with our with our team, and so we tried as much as we could to bring people into the loop with as much information as often as possible through as, through as many cha- channels mm. as, as we, we felt like they could, they could handle. Mm. Um, we had, we engaged a lot of our, a lot of our people, even our new people in the project work as well as either subject matter experts, mm-hmm. um, as, you know, mm-hmm. as testers for our, for our IT systems, as reviewers of, of operating procedures mm-hmm. and policies. Yeah. Um, and, and we really, we really doubled down on trying to leverage the experience and the expertise of people who were new to the organisation. So I made a point of saying to everyone who joined the organisation, and I still say it to mm. people, that just because you're the you're the newest person in the room doesn't mean you have to be the quietest voice in the room. Yeah. And, in fact, my expectation was that you're here because of your experience and your mm-hmm. expertise and the things that you've done. We think you've got something to add, so my mm-hmm. expectation is that you will add it. And so we tried to empower people in that, mm-hmm. in that respect as well. Probably the, the third thing we, we tried really hard to do to galvanise people through this time is just we were, we were really honest that it wasn't going to be smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, were, we were going to have hiccups yeah. along the way. There were, there were going to be setbacks, there were going to be things that would either take longer or we would have to do differently, speed humps that we would hit that we did yeah. not yet know about because the environment was so uncertain, so uncertain. And we just called it out. You know, we, we called it out. Everyone's experiencing the same thing. We gave people space to vent their angst about it mm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost like, you know, you're all kind of building this organisation 
together. Um, you know, when you've reflected on how you involved everyone, um, be it testing new systems, be it through engaging on what that looks like in terms of the organisation that you're creating and like you said, having those open feedback channels um, where people can just go, actually, this isn't working. We need to change tact here. I'm really listening to that um, and building into how you do things. In reflecting on um, that kind of startup phase, for want of a better word, what recommendations would you have for other leaders who may be facing the same thing and really want to set their organisations up for success? Yeah, look, I mean, I would, I would not wish all of those circumstances on any, <laughs> on any other leader. Um, it's quite a during, unique situation, isn't it? <laughs> a startup base. Well, well, it, it yeah. is. I, I think you know, investing, investing in sort of those really mm. key, three key things: investing in your in your people and your mm-hmm. relationships with your people. Um, mm-hmm. We, you know, as I've as I've said, we tried to really double down on that from from day one. Mm. Um, as a result of that, in investing in your, what you want your culture to look like, mm. um, and having your people, having your people own that culture, they were two really big things for us. Trying to communicate with a degree of clarity mm. about about the plan. What is yeah. the plan here? What are we trying to do? Try and continue to bring it back to, to single purpose and single and single vision. Mm-hmm. Um, we were you know, we, we set a vision early on, productive and prosperous workplaces for all Victorians. So as a regulator that mm. that that allowed us to try and to try and um, galvanise people to that purpose and help them link all of their, you know, daily tasks and their mm-hmm. daily outcomes back to it. Um, but I think I think the biggest thing for, for us and, and my biggest piece of, of advice for, for what it's worth is just um, calling calling out the uncertainty, mm. finding finding Absolutely. ways to to label the uncertainty, to be able to, you know, whatever language is, is your, your language of choice, navigating the, the neutral zone, whatever whatever you want to use, just giving, giving people permission to sit with that uncertainty and to feel how they feel. And I love that you have a few different supporting tactics there that you're drawing on because you can't predict how everyone's going to respond to change. We all respond differently and I think at that particular time, all of our life circumstances looked a little bit differently too. You know, if you were living at home with children, that was one thing to be grappling with. If you were living alone, that was another thing. Um, You know, even if you were in your house with a partner, you know, all those different situations could have... Oh, absolutely, (laughs) absolutely agree. And and people people dealt with those things Mm. um, differently depending on those those circumstances. Um, and then you, you know, you add on top of that um, just the sort of, you know, the general health anxiety mm, that was absolutely. that that was and, and continues in a lot of ways to, yeah. to persist. That was that was really tough on people. So we, I mean, we tried we tried everything. You know, mm. we tried. And you know, you've been quite successful since. Um, you know, I'm one of your followers on LinkedIn, and you know, it always seems like every day there's something new cropping up about wage inspector at Victoria. And I think something that stood out to me recently, and I know you mentioned this maybe wasn't your quote, we're still trying to track down where it came from, but you posted up on LinkedIn, regulators can't possibly be everywhere, but we can be anywhere. And I felt like that was really powerful. I'm interested in the important balance you strike as a regulator between I guess supporting and enabling organisations um, and businesses to be voluntarily compliant, 
with laws and legislation, whilst also, I guess, really taking a stance when people do break the law. How do you go about navigating both ends of that all-important scale? It's, it's the challenge for, for, every, for every regulator, mm. getting that balance right. And that, that quote, regulators can't be everywhere, but, but we can be anywhere. I'm, I'm quite certain I stole that from, from somewhere. But until someone else comes forward and claims it as their own, yeah. uh, I'm going to continue. Well, to you've run. heard it here. If it was you, feel free to comment on LinkedIn when we launch this podcast and we'll make sure that that's attributed to you. <laughs> yeah, make, make, make your claims and we, yeah. will, we will attribute it. Um, but it is it is a really tough balance. So I suppose for me, I, I was I was a little bit lucky. So mm-hmm. two, two things sort of informed my decision-making in this regard. The first was I had worked for a regulator previously that, mm-hmm. that in my view was, um, you know, a relatively mature and high-performing regulator that mm-hmm. I had learnt a lot from. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not perfect, of course, as no regulator is, but I had come out of that environment with some really fundamental kind of core beliefs about what good regulators mm. um, do. And to my view, good regulators use their resources really discerningly at mm. the heart of what they do. So for me, what that translates to with, with the wage inspector, it is, well, if, if, if people can um, either help themselves or if we can, mm. you know, with, with, as, with as little um, intervention as possible, help them become compliant, then we absolutely um, can and should and will mm-hmm. as, a, as a first sort of principle. Um, re- regulators shouldn't, to the extent that it's possible, over-service. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about matching the, the right type of intervention to the right type of behaviour that you see. Mm-hmm. And so you have, that, you have those behaviours that are, um, you know, perhaps lower risk and mm-hmm. or have a lower impact and you help people come into a compliant sort of sort of stance. Um, doing that quickly and, and as sort of effectively as you can then allows you to kind of get to the main game, which mm-hmm. is well, where where is the actual harm occurring? What can you focus on that is more serious, that is more impactful and that can have a, a bigger bang for your buck in terms of mm. reducing harm and creating a broader deterrence factor? Stepping back, bigger picture, looking nationally, um, we don't have consistent legislation across Australia. What do you think other jurisdictions might be able to take from um, the sorts of legislation we have in Victoria, how Wage Inspectorate Victoria has come about as an organisation? What do you hope happens nationally in relation to child employment um, and wage theft legislation? Perhaps to focus on, on the wage theft part of that question, the government, the current government and the previous government both made commitments to um, have criminal wage mm-hmm. theft laws at the mm-hmm. Commonwealth level. The current government now are, are, are absolutely uh, and have been publicly in discussions with all of their stakeholders, including, including Victoria, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the benefits of Victoria having a system up and running um, at the moment is that you know it offers it offers a model mm-hmm. for for consideration by mm-hmm. the Commonwealth, and and that's really all it is. It's yeah. for consideration. I think that there there seems to be a really strong commitment to to get um, a national you know some some type of national system, whatever that might look mm-hmm. like, up and running. And I think that would that would be to the benefit of the benefit of, of citizens right across the country. Um, you know, Queensland have their own set of set of wage theft laws. Um, 
there are there are other states, including your own state mm-hmm. in South Australia, that are contemplating the same thing. So yeah. it's pretty it's a pretty active discussion at the moment. Um, similarly, in in the child employment space, um, you know there are there are different things happening in in different states. Mm. Um, child child employment laws generally are the domain of of, of the states, but um, you know, we, there, there are plenty of voices out there at the moment who are calling for um, some harmonisation of, of child employment laws as well, and that that would be a really interesting discussion that you know I'm sure Victoria would would want to have some input into if if and when it yeah. um, starts to congeal a little bit. Yeah. What do you see the benefits of harmonisation as being? You know, if I, if I reflect on the child employment mm. space, for instance, um, it would it would offer national consistency as mm. as the main one. Um, the the, the main objective of child employment laws as they exist in their various forms across the federation are to protect kids. Mm. Now, that's something that I think everyone can get behind. Absolutely. The, the difference, of course, across the states, however, is that those laws are, are constructed differently, mm. enforced differently. So to, to offer some national consistency across borders, I think... That, that in theory um, works really well, but there's plenty of examples in, in industrial relations and in other areas of law where mm. uh, the theory of, of harmonised laws um, does not always match up with the potential practice as no. well. So it's tough. It's yeah, tough. It's, definitely. It's a tough, tough gig trying to, trying to harmonise laws, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And as someone who's been working since I was 14 years old I think actually when I got my first job I think they maybe actually hired me illegally I think the legal age was 14 and nine months yeah I can certainly see the benefit of having that legislation um, in place well it's funny that you mentioned 14 yeah. and nine months because mm. that is a that is in Victoria um, that is a huge um, but very, very pervasive myth mm. that exists that you have to be 14 and nine months to be able to work. Um, in fact, in, in Victoria, you can work in, in some types of jobs from, from 11, in other types of jobs from 13. You, you need mm. currently, currently you need a permit to be able yeah. to do that, but, but it will soon be a licence. Um, but you can work unrestricted from 15 years old is mm. the sort of, is the, the unrestricted threshold for, for work. Um, so that 14 to 9 months actually comes from um, decades ago when kids used to leave school. Mm. So it, it used to be the age at which you could officially leave school. Yeah. And, of course, when kids did leave school, um, they, back then, they, they, they often went to work. Exactly yeah. So that's, that's where 14 to 9 months comes from. Um, but it's, um, in Victoria, at least, that's a, that's a really um, misunderstood mm. um, myth. Well, there you go. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, Well, I guess, you know, when we're reflecting on who you're there to support um, and help, it's a wide range of different people, but it probably goes without saying that you're most likely to experience, you know, wage theft, um, having your long service leave entitlements not appropriately um, provided to you, um, or even, you know, those child employment um, breaches that we were talking about. you know, often it's our most vulnerable people across Victoria who are impacted um, by this sort of conduct. Can you tell me a bit about how Wage Inspector at Victoria approaches um, stakeholder engagement to ensure that your services remain accessible to all, no matter who you are across Victoria? Yeah, look, you, you, you're spot on. Um, 
there is there is an, an over-representation amongst vulnerable cohorts mm. of, of, of people when it comes to not receiving their entitlements, as, as there would be an over-representation mm. in other areas mm. of, of regulation as well. Um, we, we have fostered relationships. Um, we, well, we've done a few things. So mm. we, we have um, fostered really strong relationships with organisations that, that work with and, and build up trust with um, with diverse communities and, and often diverse communities in which vulnerable people exist. So in Victoria, organisations such as West Justice, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, we, we know, for instance, that a lot of migrant and refugee communities can have a distrust of, of government organisations. So, you know, we partner with, with mm. stakeholder groups that perhaps have um, a little bit more trust and, and, and probably a bit mm. more credibility with, mm. with those with those. Um, communities and cohorts as well. Um, we also try and make it really easy for people to speak to us. So mm. whether that's speaking to us, you know, in language through interpreters, whether mm. it's whether it's getting um, whether it's getting uh, information in language from us, um, speaking to us anonymously is another thing mm. that we that we're able to um, that we're able to do as well. Um, but you know, it also depends on on um, what makes someone vulnerable. And, mm. you know, we've sort of been talking a little bit about, um, you know, kind of um, different ethnic or migrant communities and, of course, there are vulnerable cohorts within those communities. Mm. I should also say that, that it's not a blanket rule. No, absolutely there are, there, not. There are, yeah. plenty of, there are plenty of people in those communities who are not vulnerable. Um, but I think one thing that's that's really on the horizon for all of us now is, you know, the, the economic conditions in this country mm. are going to drive... Um, um, some some you know economic and financial vulnerability amongst amongst groups in the community as well, mm. and often what that means is is that um, you know their entitlements, be it their as you say their long service leave, their wages, whatever it is, mm. their entitlements are really precious to them because mm. it's not just a few dollars in the bank; it's their ability to pay their mortgage, it's their yeah. ability to put a roof over their head, or send their kids to school, or buy their kids clothes. Um, you know. The, the economic conditions that we have with cost of living rising, interest mm. rates going up, that's going to put the it's going to put the pinch on on people, and it's going to put a pinch on people who are running businesses as well mm. because their costs are going up, their suppliers, their supplier costs are going up, their rents are going up. Um, they are yeah. also under a lot of pressure, and they might be and they might be tempted to take some shortcuts mm. as well. So I think as as regulators, we all need to be really awake to the idea that the, the economic conditions that we're experiencing now that are not going to ease immediately um, are going to create more and different types of work for us in, in the regulatory um, space as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that that kind of importance and pressure on each dollar um, becomes really amplified in these sorts of conditions and, you know, that reflection that maybe our picture of vulnerability will shift and change alongside those economic conditions you know what um what lessons would you share with other public purpose organizations um who are wanting to ensure that their services are accessible to anyone who might need those um go and ask the people who are using them what Mm. they think yeah it It seems simple doesn't it but i think we'd all be surprised how rarely that might happen yeah, yeah. Go, go, go and ask them and then listen to the answer. Mm. Um, um, 
you know, we we spend a lot of time speaking to our stakeholder groups, and and as a workplace relations regulator, I have stakeholders that largely comprise, you know, employer groups, unions, peak bodies, mm-hmm. you know, government, and a sort of little bit in between. Um, go and go and listen to them. Go and go and actually get their views, listen to mm. the feedback. The, the good feedback, sure, but the constructive feedback is, yeah. where, the real, is where the real gold is. Um, and see what you can take from that in terms of the way that you, you offer your services. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think a, a relentless pursuit of continuous improvement mm-hmm. um, is, is the other thing that you just got to be willing to, to do. So as an organisation, we have you know, baked into our strategy that pursuit of continuous improvement and have, have made a commitment that um, not only will we continue to pursue it, but if that means um, breaking what we've built purposefully, mm. um, then then we will do that. If it means cannibalising our business model to do something better and something different, then, then we will do it. Um, certainly if it means stopping some things, mm. um, then, you know, you have to be organisations and regulators have to be really brave and, and public servants are terrible at this, yeah. terrible at stopping things. Absolutely. We're terrible at stopping things. And so you have to be really purposeful and, and, and really brave and really clear about what you will do and what you won't do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we're talking about the shifting economic conditions, um, you know, public purpose organisations aren't immune um, from that. We've certainly seen that out of the recent um, state budget in Victoria in particular. So, you know, therein lies the all-important conversation. What what services do we know are really having an impact in line with our vision and which ones aren't? And based off that, what might we be able to stop doing so we can really double down on the impact yeah. of those ones that are working? Yeah, and, and, and organisations as I said, are not always very well practised at that. But mm. sometimes when they try and do it, um, they try and just do it overnight. Mm. Um, and, you, and you can't do that either. No. You know, you, you, have to, you have to have a longer-term conversation both with the community, with your stakeholders, mm. with your rising environment as well. You have to be willing to engage in that longer-term conversation before you start making these, these changes. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, again, that takes it takes courage, it takes effort, it takes energy, mm. uh, and and it takes a uh, and it takes a really sharp eye mm. to, to 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 watch over what's working and what's not along the way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Great advice there, Rob. Well, that was that was something, Chloe, as well. Yeah. I should I should say, um, and this is. Do we need to attribute um, another quote? <laughs> unprompted, unprompted. Yeah. But this is this is something that Cube's been really helpful mm. with us to understand. So you know, we we had we had you guys in to help us do um, some some a forward thinking piece yeah. of work about about what our business is going to look like in you know 12, 18, 24, 36, 36 months time, and um, through that process. Amongst other things, we were able to start to really get a, a focused idea of what services might look like into mm. the future, um, what we're doing well, what we could do more of, and what we could do less of as well. So that yeah, 
that was a really valuable input for me and for my leadership team to be able to, be able to help set us on the course for making some of these decisions as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what, what stood out to us um, as part of that work is quite similar to how you reflected on setting up Wage Inspector at Victoria from the get-go in terms of that really um, consultative approach um, you took with everyone in the organisation. You know, we had multiple forums um, with staff and your executive around what that future state for Wage Inspector at Victoria needed to look like. And, yes, I think similar to you, we, we are quite humble um, in talking about our work, but it's great to see that that allowed you the space to step back and think about how to do things differently. Yeah, yeah it, it really did. And, and as a new-ish regulator, mm. we're, in, we're in a really lucky position because... Um, you know, we have um, we have a, a strong social license. Mm. We have um, you know good backing and support from our from our authorising mm. environment, and you know, um, and we and we are funded. So mm. those those three things are, are great, and that and that means at the moment, you know, I say this to our to our people often. Um, you can do you can do anything mm. in that environment. You can do anything. You can't, but you can't do everything. Yeah, and so you have to be discerning about how you use that capital, whether it's, you know, your social licence, whether it's your authorising environment, whether it's your, your actual, you know, your money. You can do you can do it you can do anything in that environment, but you can't do everything. Mm. So that piece of work we did with, with Cube and the work we did with our team as well really helped us focus in on, you know, what is our strategy going to be, how mm. are we going to really nail it over the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's an adaption of that quote again. I love it. Well, We've I'm, come full circle. Yeah, I'm, quite, I'm quite sure that I'm quite sure I've stolen that from someone. But, well, but, reflecting yeah. on, um, you know, it's interesting because you are always, um, it, you know, it's great. You're very quick to point that out. But I guess in closing, um, I'm conscious through our earlier conversations, Rob, um, you know, the concept of ego in leadership is something um, that you like to come back to from time to time. And I'm interested in your reflections. Um, when you think about public service leadership, you know, what role of what what, what role does the ego have within that? Um, well, hopefully hopefully not a not a role so great that your ego is driving <laughs> the bus. Yeah. Um, this uh, this is what I always come to. I think, you know, um, as a as a leader, you know, authenticity and, and, and empathy will always trump will always trump ego. Mm-hmm. Um, but mind you, authentic leadership, you know, that's it's not about being better than someone else. It's about be- being better than, than than you used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that you know that pursuit of of um, that pursuit of, of growth and, and humility and being able to help others is a you know is actually about being better than, than you used to be and being able to be authentic mm. in, in that way. I think I'm really interested in the function of ego because I think, you know, my own reflection for, for, for some time earlier in my career, I probably got it wrong mm. um, and, I, and I probably conceived ego in a little bit of a different way to what I do now because, um, you know, if, if, as a leader, if, you, if your ego is driving the bus, it will just it will never be satisfied. Um, mm. You'll never be able to achieve everything that you want to achieve or get everything that you want to get. You'll you'll always want more. You'll be in that perpetual state of, of, of striving and, and and you know and reaching, and you'll never truly sort of feel like you've you've been able to mm. uh, arrive at any of your of your goals. And once you can actually put that sense of ego aside, you you know you can get into a more of an authentic tone with your leadership. Um, 
you know, leaders leaders often, I think, feel the pressure of, of um, you know, perhaps um, feeling like, you know, they, they have to be right or they have to win. Mm. Um, that's your ego. You know, your, your ego likes to divide the world, divide the world up into, into winners and, and, and losers. And that's, mm. that's really, really unhelpful, I think, as a, as a leader. So for me, um, what I have tried to do, particularly over the last sort of five, six years, is, um, is you know, regularly kind of remind myself of, of the function of, of ego and what is in my control and what is not in my control. Mm. Um, it sounds it sounds simple, um, but it's it sounds simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy, um, no. Um, yeah. So you know, for me, that was that was letting go of some practices that I think were perhaps you know, yeah. not really conducive to mm. getting good outcomes or, or really or to who I was. Um, to letting go of the source of some some conflict mm-hmm. uh, that you know quite often I stumbled into as a leader that was perhaps a little bit unnecessary as well. Um, but I, I, re- I just I really think I try to remind my new leaders of this mm-hmm. all the time. Um, you know, you 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 have to you have to know when to stop. You can't have that sense of, of feeling superior. You don't need to be right all the time. You don't need to win all the mm-hmm. time. You can actually let go of a little bit of that control as well. Um, and I think a lot of that is you know understanding the function of ego and being able to you know reset within yourself a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it. It's actually really interesting to reflect on um, the cyclical nature of our conversation, right? Because, um, you know, you're talking about um, in leadership, you don't always have to be right and what you can control. And that kind of brings us back to leading through uncertainty as well. You're not going to have all the answers when things are uncertain. And, you know, one of Um, the common tools and it's actually derived from Buddhism um, that we use with our clients when we're supporting them through change is the circle of control, you know. So you've got all these things you're concerned about. You've got some things within that that you might be able to influence and then you've got even smaller number of things within that that you can actually control yourself. So really, and like you said, it sounds simple but it's not easy, but reflecting back on what are those things you can actually control really helps you maintain your focus and balance as well, which is very it's, important. It's starting to, it's, it's starting to sound like um, parenting advice. It is, quite. isn't it? That's, you know, before we hit record, that's where we started. <laughs> yes, yes, it's the same, but it's yeah. the same thing, isn't it? Like yeah. knowing, knowing what's in your span of control, um, knowing mm. where to invest your energy as yeah. well. Um, because leaders particularly have, have mm. really tough jobs. It takes a different type of energy mm. um, to lead than it does to do, to do other jobs. Um, yeah. not, not necessarily always more or less, but certainly a different type of, mm. a type of energy. And you are given to a leadership role in a different way than you are given to other types of mm. roles. And so I think understanding where your scope of control starts and mm. finishes is, is really important because otherwise you you know you'll end up driving yourself crazy mm. um, but also you know for, for for leaders and particularly leaders starting out um, understanding that having a balance in your life is is quite important as mm. well you probably won't be able to do a great job at work um, if everything you know in your home life is, is absolutely chaotic mm. and kind of out of control or out of balance. Um, and, and vice versa is, is also true. Um, yeah. So, you know, I try to encourage my leaders to maintain that balance um, 
where they can and to talk to me about it, um, mm. you know, if, if and when it's getting a little bit out of whack because mm. it gets out of whack for me sometimes absolutely. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure it must for them as well. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, you can't be an authentic and empathetic leader if you're burnt out. That's just not going to work. Yeah. No, no, you can't. And and I think, you know, after the last couple of years of, of the pandemic and, mm. and um, different various lockdowns, I think it's getting, you know, the line's got a little bit blurred. Mm. It's, getting, it's getting a little bit more difficult to identify mm. um, the types of, of, of strain that are, that are on you, um, particularly as a leader. And so burnout can really creep up on you. Um, if, if you're not sort of actively monitoring it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, um, ending on the tone of balance and prioritising and focusing on what you can control, Rob, we better let you get back to your day. But I did want to say thank you so much uh, for joining our conversation um, today and taking us through that really interesting journey that Wage Inspectorate um, Victoria has been on. And what you know, you yourself have been on as a leader as well. Um, it's been a pleasure to hear about that journey. Oh, thanks, Chloe. It's been, it's been great to chat. Thank you. Our guest today has been Robert Hordle, the Commissioner of Wage Inspector at Victoria. At CUBE, we would like to take the time to recognise the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the lands on which CUBE is based. We pay our deep respects to elders, past and present. If you'd like to know more about our conversation today, please visit our website at cubegroup.com.au where you'll find show notes, additional links and can also download a transcript of this conversation. Whilst you're there, you can find out more about Cube Group, our case studies and learn about our team and our work as a purpose-driven consultancy. I'd encourage you to subscribe to All Sides on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again for listening.